You're listening to the Noise Canceling Pod, the podcast about streamlining life, encouraging discourse, and maximizing your mind. Hosted by Frank Boyce and Axel Clark. This unpaid fictional spot is brought to you by Top Copy. Now on Best Buy Prime Streaming, 16 writers compete for a $50,000 prize and a featured article in Rolling Stone magazine. Through a series of intense individual and team events, these writers will race to conquer breaking stories, long-form interviews, op-eds, and morally questionable native advertisements. Hearts and pens are sure to be broken this season on Top Copy. All right, so welcome everybody. This is uh, episode one, Noise Canceling Pod. I'm Frank Boyce. And this is Axel Clark. Thanks for joining us this week. Just to let you know, we're now available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Uh, we got added to Stitcher late in the week. Uh, SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash noise canceling pod. Uh, one thing I'd like to say, just as a as a note, I want to give a little credit to Bill Simmons for the uh, the idea of having those fake TV shows from really random sources like Best Buy Prime Streaming. So if you go to look at Best Buy Prime Streaming, I don't believe you're going to find anything, but you you never know. I'm I might be surprised. <laughs> <clears throat> so actually, you wanna you wanna introduce the topic for this week. All right, so topic one for this week is assertive engagement versus disengagement in the world. And we're going to start off by talking about Twitter, which many people use as a source of news. Uh, there is people who communicate and there is a social aspect to it. But uh, for me particularly, I use it to find news. And I, I've kind of been asking myself, I converse with my friends, but I'm not sure I engage at the macro level. And so I'm trying to find figure out what the best way to use Twitter is. And we talked a little bit last week about uh, using multiple Twitter feeds from different angles so that you can get a good perspective on an issue and you're not just seeing it from a single, one single side. So I think that's definitely one benefit of Twitter is being able to, if you're willing to look at multiple ang- multiple angles and multiple viewpoints, you can kind of consolidate them into a single feed. And when the issues are happening, you can quickly see what different people are saying about those things. Sure. So what do, what do you mean exactly with macro level? Like how, when you're in a conversation, like let's say a conversation this week, how, how do you respond to that type of conversation? So I have a specific example where I was looking at an issue and I probably had some knowledge on the issue, but I did not engage because I'm not sure that putting Twitter like comments in, in a tweet to a tweet is that if that's going to change anything? And the specific specific example I have is there's a video out there where uh, it's a Turkish soccer game, and they're supposedly booing the moment of silence for the French, and then they're shouting Allah Akbar, some sort of pro ISIS statement at the end of the moment of silence. And so you had everyone saying, "Hey, these guys are allies. How could they do this?" And it just didn't seem right to me. And so then when I dug a little bit deeper. I found that they are, in fact, booing just the terrorists in general. And then people have to realize that they have, I mean, they have the, the issue with the PKK and uh, the Kurdish terrorism. They've had those issues in the past. And so they were talking, they were kind of voicing their, displ- like, v- speaking out against those acts of terrorism. And so it's, <laughs> but people just want to say, oh, let me look at this. And it's, Muslims hating on the French and personally since I've lived there I knew that like that didn't that didn't 
that wasn't congruent with how I know the Turks are. And so I, I felt like I should have said something in the comments explain that that's not how they are or that I've been to Turkey and there's some of the friendliest people I've met anywhere. But then I'm thinking, is this, do I, should I engage here? And is it going to do anything or am I just going to incite more crazy talk? Sure. Yeah. I actually had a, a pretty similar experience. I saw, <clears throat> excuse me, I saw the video on YouTube and I was like, this, this is weird. This doesn't sound right. And I, I did see in some of the comments section, people for, who were actually from Turkey, uh, mirroring what you just said that they were, they were trying to honor, honor the victims. Um, a couple of people said they weren't even chanting Allah Akbar. They were chanting some other similar sounding Turkish phrase, but I obviously don't know Turkish that well. Um, and I, I can't say whether or not they're saying that, but they were, they were just defending the people there and saying, you know, I think there's more, there's more background and like, you need to understand more about the Turkish culture to understand what's actually going on. Like you said, the PKK has been an issue in Turkey for almost over 40 years now. Um, with domestic terrorism there. So I think I think of any culture in the Middle East, they're probably the most sensitive to, well, I guess I don't want to say the most sensitive, but they are very sensitive to terrorist attacks and, and you know, honoring those victims. Right. So, so then afterwards, I, I left the conversation, I thought about it, and I don't know, what do you think? Do you think that putting something in the comments can change people's mind? I don't know. I think it depends. I think in that situation where you have personal knowledge of of living in Turkey and and interacting with a lot of Turkish people, I think that gives you that gives you some credibility. In internet comments, I feel like it's hard to ever really have true credibility. Um, you know, people always question sources, question what you're hearing. I mean, like like with that video, especially. You know, some people say, "Oh, they're definitely saying Abu Akbar," and a Turkish person may say, "Oh, it's this other Turkish phrase." But how how do I just as a as a as a outsider how do i decipher what's actually going on like who's going to actually believe me as this white u.s person saying like oh no that's that's not exactly what these turkish soccer fans mean in in istanbul or ankara i think is where it was yeah. uh, one thing so we were talking before the podcast just about how we both kind of are just biologically and i think for me i'm i'm more on the engagement side where if I hear a conversation where I have some sort of knowledge, I I want to get in on it. I, I want to have a discussion. And uh, I think you're saying more you're you're biologically predisposed to not engage. Yeah, particularly on the internet. In at work when there's conversation, I personally I like to listen first, and so I'll, I like to hear someone's point of view, and then I'll ask questions and kind of dig into it a little bit more. But on the internet. I find that I typically just read everything, kind of take it in, make my own judgment, and then I don't necessarily go back and try to change anyone's mind. Yeah, for sure. Um, one huge story this week was obviously the Syrian refugee crisis. Um, tons of things coming out. Tons of tons of state governors saying they're not going to take any refugees. First, let's. Um, do you want to just start off with the discussion of kind of the refugee? crisis in general or refugees or where do you want to where do you want to take this uh i'm interested to know so you said that you you engaged you learned you learned some new things so i'm interested to hear kind of what you've what you've learned and what you found out so i will say i didn't necessarily learn a lot from the engagement but it was it was through the engagement that kind of forced me to look at at outside sources so uh, people were saying you know it seems 
it seems like it would be smart to limit the number of refugees coming in. It's it's a really dangerous time. We've never seen an enemy like ISIS, et cetera, et cetera. And in my mind, you know, I'm thinking back to 2001, 2003, 2007. You know, we're talking about people from Afghanistan, Iraqi refugees. And really, you, you haven't heard anything other than on, you know, shows like 24 who are who are showing immigrants and, and refugees in, in a negative negative light. Um, so I, I dug into it a little bit and, and just looking at some of the statistics from 2007 to 2013, the program that's in place to screen refugees uh, looked through about 211,000 applicants from Iraq. And out of that, that number, um, they let in a little over 84,000. So I, I think there, there's a little bit of, uh, I, I looked this up afterwards, an availability heuristic. And so that's that's the tendency to weigh weigh your judgments more heavily towards recent information. Uh, when I was in the conversation, I was like, I know this is a psych psych term. Uh, I couldn't pull it up, but you know, it really does apply to this. Where we think just because this is the current enemy, that it's so much more dangerous than the enemies that we've faced in the past. And I think when you look through, and you know, if there's if there's been over eighty thousand immigrants from Iraq, you know, I. I think it's really hard to make the case that those Iraqis were were less dangerous in our mind at the time than than Syrian refugees are right now. Yeah, did did they ever were any of the attackers refugees? I thought they said one had had tried to claim the refugee status. To be honest with you, I, I didn't do a ton of research because I had I'd also also done a little bit more research on how the U.S. refugee program works compared to how Europe is taking in refugees right now, and it's it's so much slower in the U.S. It's so much more in depth that I just I don't even feel like that's comparing apples apples to apples. Oh, got you. So I, I felt like it was it was worth my engagement just because it pushed me to that that next level of searching where I was like I I really want I don't want to win this argument. But I want to know for myself, like what my position is, and and that it's actually based on on facts and history, and not just based on on fear. Because that was one of my main arguments was just, you know, you're yielding to terrorists in this case. You know, like you're you're changing your perspective out of fear that was caused by by those terrorists. And and to me, that's like the most un-American thing that you can you can do. Like I think people are are trying to take it from a a patriotic nationalist standpoint and I'm like that's that's the opposite of what you're arguing. Yeah, I think this this issue is frustrating to me because I think and terrorism is a it it's a challenging tactic for people to use because it plays right to human nature and human human nature is to get scared to to be fearful and then to kind of come together as a as a tribe and so as a tribe at, as in the US and so people are naturally going to want to uh, like avoid outsiders and kick people out. So it's just a natural response that can you blame people for responding naturally? But you're right. That's exactly what the terror. That's what exactly what the terrorists want us to do, and that's why terrorism is so effective. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's and I told him, you know, like I'm I'm not not afraid of ISIS. Like they're they're a terrible organization and a terrible threat to the world. So like, it's not, it's not like what I'm saying isn't out of fear. Like I, I want to make sure that who we screen as refugees are legit people and want to actually escape 
danger. You know, like that's the, the definition of the refugee is that they, they're someone who needs to escape danger. And, you know, some, some ideas pop up, you know, like, <laughs> I'm, I don't even want to jump into the Jeb Bush. Let's limit it just to Christians. Cause that's not, <laughs> I hate to make fun of anyone, but that's, that's just not a, <laughs> it's, it's just disingenuous that you could actually think that that would, that would work. Um, but, you know, maybe limit the number of fighting age men. And to me, it just comes down to what if there's a family, you know, what if, what if this whole family needs, needs refuge, you know, like that's the definition of refugee. What if they need to escape danger in Syria? And you're going to say, well, you know, your mom, your dad, your grandma, uh, your little sister can come, but, but you need to stay in Syria. So, so good luck. And I'm sure you're not going to become a terrorist because we didn't, we left you off the flight to America. Right. Like that's what I've read that it, part of ISIS's strategy is right now there's, they call it a gray zone where, uh, Muslims and the rest of the world are peacefully interacting and, and living together. And they want to eliminate that to where it pushes all Muslims back to them where they want to quit living with the rest of us. So that's why I think, I don't know, you have to just, I think you, you can't just jump to a solution out of, out of fear without thinking about what's the strategic goals of ISIS and what, what are we going to do? Sure. But or it's hard. Or like that situation points out like the unintended consequences of a policy, but it's you hard. Know, like you, yeah. Yeah. But it's Go hard ahead. because it's human nature, you know, it's human nature to when something like that happens and it's all in the news and everyone hears about it, people get, people become fearful. Like, so, I mean, you, I'm sure there's other people talking about this, but you have much a much greater chance of dying like in a car wreck by far than any sort of terrorism attack yet people are not out like hey we i can't drive my car because you know i there's a chance that i might die in a car wreck people like that's people don't become fearful of that and that's just and it's human nature so i mean i have to acknowledge that but the real risk of dying in ter- from terrorism is so low but just out in the news and in everyone's face, people will want to react to it. Yeah. And I think it's hard right now when it's such a complicated situation, you know, like, like we were saying last week, like if you wanted to learn about it, like, and you didn't have any knowledge, where would you even start? It's so multi-layered. It's so complicated when it's hard for, you know, (laughs) the state department to even figure out what to do, what guidance to write, you know, and I'm not giving the state department a, a ton of credit, but I'm, I'm just saying like, it's such a complicated decision and there's so many different factions that you can't even necessarily point a point a finger right now. Like, I, I think I know personally what strategy I would have, but that doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's the right strategy or, or one that would look, be able to look back in seven years and say, Oh, that was, that was the perfect tack to take right. to solve that. Cause there's so many sides that are just going to keep popping up. I don't think there's there's definitely not an easy strategy. We probably would have already tried it if there was. And also, like you said, it's hard to understand. And all and that doesn't even take into account all the things that are happening behind the scenes that no one knows about. That is impossible to. I mean, that's not something you can research. That's yep. just happening back there that you don't know, you don't know all the all the players and what's happening. Yeah, exactly. So we can we can kind of put that for a different day when we really we can we can do a deep dive on Middle Eastern policy and history because yeah. I think that I think that actually be a really interesting episode to to spend an hour just figuring out what's actually going on and where how we 
possibly came to the point where we're at now. Yeah. Because you, you, I think you can trace it back pretty easily. Um, right. But it's so multi-layered where you need to explain 10 different narratives. Like you can trace all those 10 narratives easily, but it still takes time to explain all those 10 different narratives and, and sides and, and what's motivating them. I think, I think th- the other challenge is people want to point to a single cause and it's most likely a combination of multiple things that have brought us to where we are. And people want to say, no, it was because of this. It was because of American uh, interventionism. Well, and is or that, lack of interventionism. Right, right. right. <laughs> Depending on who you talk to. One person I did want to touch on, um, and I, I think one, one note for this podcast is I, I don't necessarily want it to get too political, but... You know, Donald Trump came out this week and, you know, I think he's still going to continue to clarify his position on the Muslim registries, but I wanted to get your take because I, I was just kind of laughing to myself. I didn't even like, I, I, I couldn't really form a thought because it would seem so outrageous. It makes me nervous because... I can't take it seriously, but then maybe I should be taking it seriously. Maybe this is a real discussion that people are having. I I, I don't know. I hadn't heard about it till till really late this week, and I was I was kind of blindsided by it. Um, I think it's a really dangerous idea. I think it's you know that would be marketing tool number one for any of these these terror organizations to just say, look at how mistrusting and not free America is like that. That's why you should hate them so much more. And, and who knows, maybe they're saying that already. Um, but I, I still, I still personally hold on to the belief that, um, we need to try to be above where the fight is, you know, like we can't just be Machiavellian and cause you know, people will, will say very Machiavellian things about, you know, we should just nuke them or, you know, we should just wage all or the, the colonel who was on TV last week saying we should dedicate 200,000 troops on the ground for the next 20 years. Like those ideas aren't good. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like, I, I just think since we're saying we are a superpower, uh, shouldn't we hold ourselves to a higher standard and, and just say, you know, people may take advantage i even said in one conversation you know i'm willing to accept a little danger to remain who we are as a country and and i think we had some many of the similar conversations when when the patriot act was coming out but i i think we were we were in a different fear envelope at that stage and and i i hope that we've moved past that um i'm not really sure if we have yeah i'm not i don't know if you read the media in general i'd say we have not like (laughs) we're in that we have that fear factor right now where, where crazy decisions or people are willing to make crazy decisions. So one thing I want to touch on is like really functional takeaway. Cause I, I, I want this podcast to be applicable to, to the listeners lives. Um, the, it was a very general question, you know, where do these discussions take place? For me, it was, it was my workplace. Um, my wife and I had a very long conversation on the refugee crisis. She has a very strong heart and empathy for the Syrian people. And so we had we had very lengthy conversations this week on on how sad it made her just to see the reactions this week and to see kind of the shifts in policy. But where do discussions for you take place on where where do you wish they were? I think is my follow up. I I wonder. So I definitely have discussions with coworkers, family, and friends. Uh, I don't. 
I don't know where on the internet you can actually have legitimate discussions that don't just turn into people uh, just pushing their own agenda, not really actually engaging in meaningful discussions. I don't know. What, or using hate speech. Right. <laughs> yeah. I think that's what they usually. So here's one thing that I have come. To. I have come. So I'll, I'm not, I'm going back to Oregon for Thanksgiving this upcoming week. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm interested to see what's small town Oregon. Uh, my town had 2,000 people in it. So I'm interested to see what their perspective, if it's even a topic of conversation for them. Maybe since we're here, uh, since I'm in DC and we're here in the big city, it's what everyone's talking about. But then when you get out into rural America, it's, they're not talking about this thing. I'm interested to see what the what their perspective is out there. Did uh, was Oregon one of the the states that barred Syrian refugees? I can't remember. So I don't think so because I. Mostly, what I read was that is primarily Republican governors that were barring them, and no Democrat governors had. So okay, then probably not. <laughs> probably not. Oregon is slightly left leaning. Yeah, well, it's by population, it is. Although if you look at it by county, it's only a very slim sliver along I five that's Democratic, and then the, oh, the whole true. rest of the state is red. Interesting. Uh, I mean, that's that's pretty pretty consistent with with a lot of states that are mixed it's uh only the larger cities um so where do you oh i I just want you to follow up and dig a little bit deeper onto where you wish they could happen okay we we can follow up so here's my new here's my new concept because i think i kind of like i've self-assessed and i think that i have been just reading twitter and the news for entertainment so the thing i'm going to try this week is I'm going to take a a notepad with me, and if I'm going to read the news, then I want to take notes on concepts or different in, important points that people are making. So if I'm going to spend my time combing around Twitter, combing around the web, the internet, researching these things, I want to actually put the time into taking notes and actually committing it to memory versus just looking at it for entertainment purposes. So that's what I don't know where I'm going to actually engage with on it but if i'm going to put the time in to be looking around at it i feel like i owe it to myself to take notes and put make make more of an effort to solidify my positions for sure i, th- I think that's great i'm i'm curious to hear hear back what your results are next week that'll be that'll be a really good follow up um me i, I feel like i wish i know there are meetups in some cities where you can go and just discuss these things but uh, my schema of those type of meetings would be you would just be discussing with a bunch of random weirdos. What, what, what do you think? Do you have any personal experience? I, I, I think that might be my challenge this week. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek out an, an in-person place to actually have a discussion. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how this goes. I, be, <laughs> because the question I would have is for what end? So is this just an intellectual discussion where people try to prove their point or who are the decision makers and that where are they getting their information and can you influence how that information is getting to them or how they're making those decisions so you're saying i should like seek out a city council meeting or something maybe. And, and do some research and show up and maybe that, that's it <laughs> well i'll have to look I'm, that might be a that might be a month out uh, i'm not a, i'm not super spun up on the the local the local topics of conversation yeah but that i mean I, I feel like discussions may actually take place at some of those meetings i don't i don't know well d- maybe 
so those are probably aren't well they could be this the same talk of topics that are in the national media but do, maybe don't you think maybe it's it's more useful of your time or beneficial of your time to study topics that you can actually influence at your local level versus these big national topics that probably you have no well I would say you have very little ability to influence the overall decisions that are made at the top level. Yeah, that's definitely true. I th- I think it depends for me. If it were a topic that I wasn't necessarily sure of, if I hadn't had a, a fully formed thought or opinion on it, I think you could get some, some real benefit from discussing with people. But I, I feel like that's not really... I don't feel like people engage at that level where they're like, I'm, I'm kind of an expert, but I'm, I'm interested to hear your, your perspective on that. I feel like people who would go to those discussions would have a very formed opinion and would, like you said, probably want to try to win. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe I'll, maybe I'll look at both this week. I'll, I'll try to find, find something local that I can go see, uh, both just as a intellectual exercise, but also as something that I may be able to influence. I like it. So topic two tonight float tank post experience if if you didn't go to the float tank this is this is going to fall very flat no so i i went i went and it was it was i wouldn't say it was life-changing but it was definitely it, it was a cool experience that i think people should at least try once would you describe it as, ex, as <clears throat> existential i would not go there yet okay but so here so here's my here are my thoughts on that okay so first of all I have, so I've been meditating, probably meditating for the last year, and I think that definitely helps you, but it's not something where you're going to do it one time and then all of a sudden your life changes. So I think to, to put float tank in a, I think it, the float tank is probably similar to meditation and that it's not something that's going to change you uh, huge at one time, but it, but it, it, it was cool. So, so here's the deal on a float tank. So it's flotation tank and it's, sensory deprivation so basically the setup is there's this huge tank it has a thousand pounds of salt in it so it's a salt water solution so you're hyper buoyant and then the water is the temperature your, your body temperature so it so it doesn't feel hot or cold and then it's a soundproof tank uh, i found you wear earplugs and then when you close the door it's pitch black in there and the water's about probably a foot and a half deep. So it's not like you're in this real deep tank, but you're so hyper, uh, like you float so much that you you are hitting the bottom. You'd occasionally kind of rut, bump over to the side, but you're floating the whole time. Really? So how it works, so okay, so you go there, they got this tank, it almost looks like a tanning salon tank, but it's a little bit bigger than that. You take a shower, you, and then, the lady says, okay, they're going to play this meditation music for the first 10 minutes. Then it's going to shut off. And then at the last three or four minutes, they pay, play Tibetan chimes. And so, okay, so I stepped in there. The first thing I did is like laid back. And I got the, so first tip, be careful when you're laying back. Cause I got the salt in my eyes, started burning. <laughs> <laughs> and so I had to like get back, I had to get back out, wipe my eyes off. And then I was good to go. And I was much more careful. And uh, I, went th- I went there with my girlfriend, and she also had that experience where she got the salt in, in her eyes. So be careful about that. So then you're sitting there, and it's weird. Be you, oh, it's, it's a weird experience because 
you learn that there is very few times in your life where when you open your eyes, it is completely pitch black and then you can't hear anything. And you really, you can kind of feel the difference between the water and the air, but in general, you, there's not a lot of feeling that you have there. And so at first you're just laying there and you kind of, I kind of got into a pre-sleep state where you're kind of daydream a little bit, but you're, so your mind kind of clears throughout the time and you and I was doing some meditation practice where I was focusing on my breathing and kind of just paying attention to my thoughts and like not trying to stay with a thought for too long but um, move along and, and primarily focus on breathing so I did a lot of that and so I went there through the hour when I got out the the feelings I had number one I my body was mad that it had to focus on staying upright because basically when you're in the tank you can just lay there and completely relax and your body doesn't have to do any sort of like gyroscope or whatever to like Mm -hmm. keep you standing up so that was the first thing I was like dang I did not want to have to stand here and then I was furious about taking my ear my earplugs out like it was so peaceful to have pure black and no sounds and then I took my earplugs out. The first thing you hear is like a worried fan. I'm like, man, it was nice to have no sound. And uh, so, and you're just relaxed, way, way relaxed. In fact, it probably cost me my fantasy football across all three of my teams this week <laughs> because I I knew that I did. I had three open positions and I needed to get, pick up a new person and put them in. Because mm-hmm. uh, the guys were on buys, and I just let it go. Guys, just so relaxed. I said, "Forget it, man. This week, I'm just gonna <laughs> count it as ride. a loss, and I'm just gonna see how it goes." That's awesome. So, how much does one of those things cost? Do you so, think you could? You think you could build one on the cheap? I don't. So, I know that the filtration system would be because you put a thousand pounds of salt in this big t- in this tank, and the, I don't know how much water it is, but it's it's very very salty and so mm-hmm. you wouldn't want to have to change that out all the time so i'm sure you need a, a serious filtration system yeah that's true a but thousand pounds I, how big was the tank it was probably 10 feet long and four feet across four feet across and then okay. about a I, foot and a half deep i was doing some some of my own research i was looking at the because there's a float in nashville too um, and their tanks are substantially smaller than that. So oh, I, really, I, I don't know. There may be, there may be some additional options out there that you could, that would be so fun to have in your house. I feel like, I feel like for as expensive as it is there, there would be some expectations in my mind of like, I need to get some value out of it. Like I really need to concentrate on not concentrating. Right. Did you feel that at all? No, I was, I, I think that I'll probably go back. And so I, because I wanted to have fun with it because there was some times where you could kind of visualize that you're in space and the mm-hmm. probably the coolest thing I did was I really ex- I was laying there and I had my hands kind of uh, s- almost like not first of all I had it across my chest and I kind of put them up by my ears mm-hmm. and it was weird because it was almost it, it was exceptionally hard to push them up out of the water for some reason it just had a weird feeling and then when I pushed them all the way out, I expect I expected to hit the ceiling of the tank, but I didn't. Mm-hmm. And so then my mind was like, whoa, like I really am in nothingness. And I had my eyes open at the same time. And so I'm just looking like it 
I'm telling you, there's not very many times in your life where you open your eyes and it's completely pitch black. Like there's always some sort of light out there or some oh, sort for of sure. hue or something. And so to have it pitch black and I put my arms out and I expected to hit something and I hit nothing that my mind was like, whoa, <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was how it was designed, right? I mean, wasn't it, wasn't it a type of uh, like interrogation technique no. when it first came out? No. There, I'm almost positive it was. No, I don't think we're, so. We're gonna, I'm going to have to do a deep dive on that this week. According to the website, it says that that uh, they were trying to research. They The research was being done that if, you, if your body was getting no sensory inputs, would you remain conscious? Could, like, oh. could your conscious exist in the absence of any sensory any sensory inputs that'd be but then the people liked it and it relaxed them so then it just became something that people did as kind of a therapy would that be your fear of owning your own tank (laughs) like i feel like you'd you'd need to have like an alarm (laughs) right so i know well oh the, the other interesting thing was your ears are so first of all you the biggest challenge i had was laying my head back because i wanted to like you have a tendency to want to hold your head up and so mm-hmm. once i pushed my head back i kind of got in the right in the right posture to where i was completely i was my muscles were completely relaxed uh, <clears throat> what was i saying just getting relaxed and leaning back yeah yeah so yeah, I have to imagine that that just getting getting comfortable during that first session is key. I I could definitely see. I know the one in Nashville offered like a like a three time kit. This right. is not an advertisement for Float Nashville, by the way. But if Float Nashville is listening, we we do have an opening for a slot for our next week's podcast. So I, I think I'm going hit back. Us, hit us up. I think I'm going back to try it one more time. I I need nice. to figure out whether what type of meditation technique you should use in there. I guess it depends on what you're what you're going for i think you should you should try to push the envelope especially if you got to almost relax sleep like you should try to push the envelope on some lucid dreaming maybe i i was having fun just visualizing it's also so the other thing that's interesting is when you are in complete darkness and you open your eyes there's little white spots you don't see pitch black you see all these little white things because mm-hmm. I was talking to my girlfriend, and she said she had to close her eyes because she thought she was going crazy seeing all these white things <laughs> in the pitch in pitch black. So she's like, "I don't want to have to deal with this. <laughs> I'm going back to eyes closed." <laughs> nice. Yeah, that would be weird. Uh, I know we did. It was like back at back in college. Um, we were we did like a full dark room. Uh, it was like a night blindness training session. And it takes your eyes, I think it's like either 23 or 28 minutes to fully get used to complete blackness before you can actually start seeing things. So next time, I think you should try and see if you can actually make out anything or mm. if it is actually complete darkness. Because this it, was like this was like a complete blackout room. And after about 30 minutes, we could start to make out oh, like really? people's, people's shapes beside us. Okay. I'm going to check that out. But I... I know I held I had my eyes open for a decent amount of time and there I couldn't see anything when I was coming out of it. Yep. But don't don't waste your experience just trying to trying to prove whether or not my theory on night blindness is correct. <laughs> the only downside <laughs> is that okay, you're on the schedule and so when you get out of this thing, you like you don't want to move fast cuz you're relaxed, but then they're trying to get someone in there behind you and so you're taking your time in the shower 
kind of relaxing and then they're kind of like knocking on the door saying hey <laughs> get moving we need to get the next person in here so that was one little downside but overall it was a, it was a cool experience you should request that there's no knocking the next time you go through. You're yeah, like, then I'm going to fall asleep in there, and then I'll be like, in there for two hours. You're like, last time there was some some rude knocking that really impeded my rec- relaxation. I, w- I would like you to refrain and just come in with some steady alms. <laughs> yeah. So, oh, one last thing. So, I was... When I was thinking about this earlier, I was trying to figure out whether you could actually sleep in there, and 100% you could sleep. If When your arms are at your sides, there's almost no way that you can roll over. It's interesting because of how how buoyant you are. So, my so girl- are you pushing for a, a bed? So, my girlfriend slept half the time at least, she thinks, in there. <laughs> and they said people sleep in there. So, I was trying to figure out how it compared to a waterbed, and it's- I think you could sleep in there. I think you could. I think it could. You could do. I don't know what how it would impact your body living in, in uh, or being in that liquid for so much. But I think you, for sure you you would be able to fall asleep in there, no problem. It's easy. That's so interesting. I, I hadn't even thought about that because I know with astronauts, there's there's some issues of bone density after a while if you don't if you don't use your use your body weight, but I, I don't think that would apply right. at night. I think it'd just be really, really nice and relaxing. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, it you was might cool. be onto something. I, I'll, I think I'll probably go back. I don't know. We'll see. It would be, it'd be hard. You would need some serious uh, waterproof duvet covers if you were going to go to that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing we haven't really ever ever done on the podcast so far, and obviously this is episode one or maybe 1.5, depending on how you want to look at the beta test. Um, and it was a question that came from my wife. She was just like, you know, what what makes you and Axel think that you should have a podcast in the first place? And like, where where do you find that your voice is interesting enough to to put it out there? And so I was I was really thinking about that that this week, uh, and I, for me it's it's a lot to do with how our friendship works uh i think very few times in life you you can just look at a person and see how they act and be like okay this person and i are going to get along almost perfectly because i i feel like that's kind of how it's how it's always been axel and i met in turkey um he was my my commanding officer when we were there we were stationed over there for a couple years and you know, it was just from the, the, the outlet that I was like, okay, this guy is into a lot of things. He's not afraid to try things. And he, he likes to talk about interesting subjects. Um, and how that relates to our podcast is I, I think that just lends us well to talking about improvement and discussions and, and a lot of times balancing each other out. Cause I, I think we come from, from very different backgrounds and, and we're still in very different, different life phases. So I, I think, I think our backgrounds are very disparate, but I think our friendship brings those things together very well. Any thoughts? Want to give uh, some so, background just on, on where you come from and kind of where your worldview was formed out of? Sure, yeah. So I grew up in Northeast Oregon, and my so like I said before, my town, the time only had 2,000 people, so I came from a very small town. And uh, my dad, both my dad and my mom were teachers. So I grew up... There's 50 people in my class. This is the biggest class to ever graduate from my school. And a lot of the people I grew up around, uh, like they didn't go to the big city. They 
they thought that Port- like Portland was scary to them. I went to school at the University of Portland, and when I came back, people were asking about the crime there, how bad the traffic. And so uh, a lot of the people I grew up with, they're, uh, they know what's going on out there in Eastern Oregon, but in terms of world travel and, and kind of traveling even around the U.S., a lot of them haven't traveled a whole lot. Um, so I went to school at the University of Portland on, on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. I studied in finance, and then I, my the, so I've been stationed around the Air Force. I'm still in the Air Force now. I've been stationed in Sacramento. I got stationed in Turkey for two years, which is where me and Frank met. And then uh, I went back. I had a uh, education with the industry. I went and worked at Intel Corporation for a year, which was a cool experience. But that was back in Portland. And then I spent some time in Boston, and San Antonio. Uh, I just spent a year in, in Qatar at IED Air Base. Is the uh, there for a year, and then now I'm here in DC. So one of our passions jointly is travel, for sure. Um, you've gotten to see some super interesting places. I have two questions. Number one, what was the funnest, what was the most fun that you had hanging out with people from a specific country? Uh, let's answer that first. I'll, I have a second follow-up question. Okay. <clears throat> so this one is without, I've so without question, it's the, over, Ankara overnight train that we that we had in Turkey that uh, me and Frank went on and oh, let me think okay so let so me I'll jump in I'll jump in on this story because because I agree this was one of my one of the most unique experiences that I've had while traveling and to me what's what always separates a great travel experience are things that you did not expect. So when things just come out of nowhere and they just happen, there's just something about it where it's so unexpected and so exciting that you you can't ever plan for something like that. So for that trip, it was really, I mean, we didn't even do anything that noteworthy. It was just that we were so with people from Turkey and realizing that these people love to have fun and joke and and just have a really good time. Right, like we... we we were taking this overnight train. We had no idea what to expect in terms of our what kind of uh, accommodations there there was going to be, and it turned out to be pretty decent accommodations. But then we turned the dining car into a dance party. Yeah, a legitimate. Yeah, <laughs> and then we met a bunch of some friends there that ended up taking us out in Accra, and like Frank said, the just the friendliest people uh, anywhere, and. Uh, we, we would just suggest ridiculous things and then they would all of a sudden happen. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, we were almost predicting the future to a certain extent and be like, well, what, what if we did this? What if we did that? And yeah, it was, like I said, it wasn't even that there was anything super noteworthy. It was just like, just having a great time and not, not a great time in the sense of like, I don't want to say like American parties, but like it wasn't like a college experience where we were like doing beer bongs or anything crazy. It was just that we were just meeting new people all the time and they were just so much fun and genuinely just wanted to have fun and wanted to learn more about us just as much as we wanted to learn about them. Well, and our trip was always on the edge of disaster. Like we met the one guy on the train. What was that guy's name? Dolphine. Dolphine. <laughs> we met Dolphine on the train. He's like, hey, come out to my apartment and 
like we'll we'll go. I forgot, I forgot that's how that was set up. <laughs> we'll go. Ha- we'll hang out with some of my friends, and so we're in this taxi cab, and we I think it was like a forty minute cab ride into the absolute burbs, and so this whole like once we got about twenty minutes in, because we didn't really know where we were going, we were we were thinking, man, this thing is about to go south. We should not be out here in the suburbs. And then we show up there, and it's even worse. It's just him and his girlfriend at the house, no one else. <laughs> we show up there all ready to hang out. We're like, wow, this is a disaster. And there's like right. six of us that yeah. we all jumped into one tiny little cab. So, But then his buddy showed up, and then probably my favorite, I don't know how this happened, but my favorite thing about Turkey was that for some reason we grabbed this yellow construction hat out of his house. <laughs> And then we wore that out. We like all of us. There's ended up being about twenty of us, and we all took cabs down to the club. And that construction hat got passed around the club. Everyone and a pair of glasses. The construction hat and glasses, yeah, glasses. were the combo yeah. that everyone was wearing in the club, and everyone thought it was the coolest thing ever. And then, and then the whole rest of the time we were in Turkey, man, we that yellow construction hat was on so many people's heads. That's true. I forgot about looking back at some of Noah's pictures. It would just be like it would just show up like in the back corner. It was like the a yellow construction cap photo bomb. Yeah, for sure. But what the what that was life changing for me because before that trip, I think I always like I always try to find interesting things to do. But I was kind of a self conscious person, and I was kind of always worried about what people thought. And on that trip, we just kept upping the level of ridiculousness with the hat the glasses all these things and then the turks like we didn't we acted like hey this is what we're doing this is what we this is gonna be fun and the turks just ate it up and they were just all in on everything that we were doing and that was a life-changing thing for me because at that point i realized that if it's i don't know if you've ever seen that there's a there's a video where this crazy guy is dancing and he's in this he's at this festival he's like dancing by himself all crazy and then like he's dancing you're like man that guy's like that guy's dancing like a lunatic but then like slowly like people start coming out there and then like at the end of the video it's like 30 people or 50 people out dancing crazy and it's just like there's a point where someone's gonna look at him and say that guy's crazy but then he's gonna keep going and then everyone's gonna hey he's crazy but he's kind of having fun so maybe we should get out there and join him and if you can overcome that that point where people are looking at you like you're insane, then you can kind of have a lot of fun. So that's the perfect segue. I mean, I think that's that's this podcast in general. Like, it's our enthusiasm. Like, that's our that's our main voice. It's our enthusiasm to the topic and our willingness to keep pushing how far we want to push things and our comfort level. That I think that's what makes it. That's what's going to make this authentic. I was thinking back. So this is a, a lame story compared to what you just told and I'll, I'll, I'll finish my, I'll have another travel question in a minute, but, um, we were in Oxford, England and there was a soap vendor and he was British and he was selling French soap, which at first I was like, this is a little inauthentic. Like, why is this guy selling French soap? But he had immense enthusiasm and he ended up giving me one of the best tips a soap person could ever give me. He was like, just take this all natural soap and use it as shaving cream. Just like rub it on. And I've used so many, I I don't even want, if Katie is ever on the podcast, don't ask her how many different shaving products and how much money I've wasted on getting good shaving products. It's a lot, but it's, it's literally the best advice. Like you just have an all natural soap, you rub it on your neck and it's, 
the best shave that you can possibly get. And I, I'm saying this from someone who's done, I've done clinical studies on razors side by side where they were taking like 3d images and looking at the moisture in every one of my pores. So like, I'll be honest, I, I know a little bit about shaving. Uh, and it was just from this random guy selling French soap. So I, I think for authenticity, like that's, that's kind of a random story, but I think it, it comes from, from random places and, and people who have enthusiasm and, and willingness to explore are going to bring something forth. Oh, man, that reminds me of this story. So <clears throat> this last spring, I was in India. So I backpacked India. I, went, I was on leave or whatever for two weeks. I went to India and Thailand. So I'm in this tiny town in India where it's mostly just a bunch of temples. And I'm waiting to go across on this ferry. And this guy walks up and he goes... He shows me this like notepad. I'm like, what the hell is this? <laughs> and he opens it up and it's like, it's basically like Amazon, uh, like reviews, but in a book. And so it's like Jacob from Australia. He's like, this dude's legit. This guy pulled three stones out of my ear. So what he did is he's an ear cleaner. And these guys are all like, hey, no shit, man. I thought this guy was a, I thought this guy was a joke, but he, he really could clean the hell out of some ears. And it's all these crazy, like, <laughs> all these comments. And so he's he's like, hey, man, I could get, what do you, so he's trying to talk me to do this. I'm like, I'm not doing this. This is ridiculous. And he, and he looks, he peers into my ear and he he's like, now I see some stones in there. I think I can pull those out. And so I got to show you, I have to email you the picture, but so I'll, there's a picture. I don't know if I want to see the picture, a but picture I'm, of, I'm curious. There's a picture of me sitting there, and this dude's got these tweezers, and he's down going into my ear, and he <laughs> seriously pulled out like three of these wax balls that he called stones, and it was amazing. Like, I don't. It was incredible, and he he had he sold me with his book, like this journal of all these people writing their comments about how great it was. Man, another good segue. SoundCloud. If you guys are listening on SoundCloud, feel free to leave any and all comments, negative, positive, otherwise. It is really nice because wherever you comment, it's actually linked to that that moment of audio. So if you're like, Frank, terrible segue, I, I appreciate that comment right there. Um, one thing that I did want to do, I wanted to just have one of us say an interesting fact about the other one. So I think I think one of my favorite things about your development in the last few years was that you became a pretty proficient DJ. Like I still go back and listen to some of your DJ mixes to this day when I'm working out cause they're, they're really good. Um, and I think that's one thing that we have in common is that we've learned that to get good at something, you need to do it on more than just a for fun basis. Like do you, first of all, do you agree with that? And secondly, tell me what, um, your biggest accomplishment has been the last three years. Ooh. I dropped that one on <laughs> that you. You're <one>. welcome. <laughs> we didn't discuss that one before. All right. Well, so first of all, I'll just talk about DJing a little bit. And So I finished my master's and I was looking for something else to do. And I'd always liked dance music. And so I decided I was going to learn how to DJ. And the, the smartest thing I did was buy, it was only like 70 bucks, but it was an online class on how to DJ. And I'm telling you that if I would have just been messing around, I never would have got it. And I never would have understood with, with DJ and it's actually really interesting how much of a framework there is. And I had going into it, I thought it was just pure creativity. You kind of just did whatever you wanted, but music is so structured that once you learn the, the overall structure is like, it kind of is 
I consider myself to be pretty left brain. Like there's a lot of left brain elements to DJing, which I found to be interesting and and help me out. But definitely taking that class and putting the time into to go through the formal instructions versus just kind of messing around that definitely set me probably like a year or more i probably still would not be where i was at if i was trying to just learn it on my own did you um so i'm trying to remember the timeline myself were you planning on djing your own party to begin with like was that part of the impetus for learning or was that a byproduct of actually getting pretty good no, well so that wasn't even a byproduct of getting good that was so this the timeline well first of all the online classes learn to DJ in 30 days or something like that. Well, so I started learning how to DJ and then about two weeks in, we got news that there's going to be this, we got promoted to major. And so there's going to be this party and they're asking for someone to do the music at this party. And the, in the class they had talked about, Hey, you need to, if you just DJ in your bedroom that, I mean, you can do that, but it's better to get out and do it in public. And so I just signed up and said, Hey, I'm going to do this. And so that like that caused me that made me more committed to learning up until that point. The funny thing about that was, so I didn't really know what I was doing because I'd only been doing it for about six weeks when I. And it's not really hard, but I didn't know what I was doing when I was up there. And it was the first time I'd ever done a show, and like I messed up the connectors and had to run to Radio Shack, and so there was some things that were stressful about it. And then, but the worst part was or the best part was that people were coming up to me because they want to talk to me about the fact that I'd been pr- promoted and they wanted to like kind of, I was part of the party so they wanted to talk to me, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so they thought I, they thought I did know what I was doing. I'm like, Hey, can you hold on a second? I'm trying to mix this over. Like, I don't really know what I'm doing, <laughs> but overall it was like, that was a good experience. And definitely that helped, helped me focus on, on actually learning how to DJ. <clears throat> sure. So my other travel question was, can you think of a particular story where someone was really accepting towards you, like specifically as an American or as a service member, I would say outside of Western Europe and the United States? Yeah, I have a great story. This is one of my favorite stories from Turkey. So in Turkey, we used to go mountain biking out in the in the countryside. And this is like the cities out there don't have running water. They don't have electricity. We're out in in the countryside. And we'd have, <clears throat> we were actually, we had some pretty, pretty heavy, heavy duty mountain biking gear because we were actually mountain biking on the goat trails that were, that ran down through all those hills. And so we had, <clears throat> we had mountain biked down the hill, down this road. And then it was me and my buddy. I was, we'd just drive to the top of the truck and then hop out in the bike and bike down the hill. And then I'd hop in the truck and drive back up. So we were driving back up in the truck. And this Turkish guy waved us over and I was just thinking to myself, oh man, this guy is about to yell at us for being, for driving on his private road. And he said, oh, I saw you guys uh, earlier, you guys Americans. And you could tell because our, my truck was distinct. And so like, yeah, I'm like, oh, he goes, you work at, uh, at Interlick. Like, yes, yes. Yeah, we do. So he goes, hey, do you want to come into my home for some, uh, tea and iron? And iron is this yogurt drink which I'll get to in a little bit. So we're like, man, we should probably not be doing this, but there was a two of us and we'd had great experience with Turkish people so far. So we, we ultimately decided, Hey, let's just do this. So we followed him in his tractor. We went to his house and it ended up being that he, first of all, there was no electricity in the house and it was his, 
his parents' house, he had gone to school and he was an engineer and he was just back on the weekend helping them tend their farm. But it was him, nieces and nephews, aunts and uncles. It ended up being about seven of us. And he was translating and we were just talking with them about what it's like in America, what they were doing. And, uh, and just a really cool conversation. And then, so then they brought out the tea, which was cool. Like, okay, it was good Turkish tea. And then they brought out the iron and, my buddy had already been feeling sick. And so <laughs> this is yogurt drink that they don't have refrigeration. And so I'm like, oh my God, this there's like little <laughs> chunks in it. And <laughs> we, this is one of the cases where you, I grabbed it and I just gulped it down. And then it was a mistake because it, they thought that I liked it so much that I wanted more. <laughs> so what the funny thing about that is my buddy, after we left, he said, Hey, you know what? My stomachs feel a lot better after, after I drank the iron. So, but they also ended up bringing us out. We had lunch in there. They brought out these lunch with some stew, and it was just a really cool experience where they invited us in their house and just we got to talk to them about like the guy with translate. We we're talking to the kids and just seeing what life is like for them. And I think it was kind of sad to me because I know I feel like. In the U.S., there's no way if they if there's some Turkish dude walking, just like driving around in the back roads in some small town in in Oregon, like we wouldn't have invited them into our house for lunch. But that's how they are. That's how they are in Turkey, and that like that was just a really cool experience. It just shows uh, the type of people the Turkish people are. Yeah, I, I love the people of Turkey. Um, <laughs> do you remember the time that um, I was? Uh, I said that I tried to tell some Turkish guy that America wasn't that great. Do you remember that? I don't think I remember that one. So we were walking down the hill from the Ankara Hilton and I was I was just walking next to this Turkish guy and we were we were talking about and he was he was actually chanting USA at the time and I was like, you know, the states are are okay, but I, I really love being here at Turkey. Being here at Turkey and he he looked at me and I can't remember if he like grabbed my face, but he like made some motion to really get my attention and make sure that I was I was focused on what he was about to say and he said you never say that Abby he was like you never say that America is the greatest country in the world and I was like oh, I didn't expect to have this lesson uh, but it was it was really interesting it's it stuck with me so much just to think from someone else's perspective how great America is just just because of the freedoms that we have and I'm not I'm not chanting USA on on the podcast but but I am saying like there there isn't just this general hatred for for America there's there's a lot of a lot of mutual respect when when you actually get out and and talk to people around the world I think the one thing that's unfair for the Turks is that their media is almost it's almost it's tabloid media and so if you're trying to understand what the Turks are thinking or understand what the public discussion is like, just reading those tabloid-like commentaries is, are going to give you a skewed perception. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So you still owe uh, the listeners one interesting thing about <clears throat> me. So I think my favorite story with Frank is, and this is going back to Turkey, just because I, I could tell Turkey stories for forever <laughs> i'm sure we'll tell a lot more but i i love that you're always down to try something new and try something different so another story so remember when we we were trying to find the club in Ankara or not in Ankara in adana we were looking for the adana club 
and they put us on that bus and so we we rode they said hey just the bus driver will tell you when to get off and so we rode that bus i thought it was like 45 minutes into a part of adana we had no idea where we were at and then we got they finally we thought that he forgot about us and then finally he points and then we look over and the club's closed and then we had to walk all the way back to the truck but then we're walking back to the truck and you hear this rock music and you're like hey what's this music in this cafe and you're like hey let's go check this out we definitely need to see what this is about and that's we went up into the rock bar that's how we found the rock bar and then we ended up uh this rock band that was in there end up oh my god (laughs) this story is going to go on forever but the bottom line is we're sitting in there and i think we just listened to them the first time they just played turkish rock music we're like okay this is cool and then we took all of our friends there and they're like okay they played some turkish rock music which is cool and then on the way out they go hey guys wait and we're like yeah and they go are you guys from america i'm like yeah and then he goes do you guys know Rage Against the Machine? And then the one dude just started killing it on the electric guitar. And then we started mosh pitting. <laughs> I forgot about that. Oh my that little dude was insane on the guitar. Yeah. And then, well, the funny thing is with Turkish rock music, they would just sit in their tables and just watch like all calm and everything. And then you have the Americans <laughs> out there mosh pitting. So ultimately, we we kind of impacted the, the structure of their show because the first half they would start playing Turkish music at least when we were there. And the second half was all American music with people mosh pitting in the front with the Turks. Like they would clear the tables out and the Turks were coming up mosh pitting. But, but I think that's what I learned from you is I, I really think I learned from you is looking for opportunities and not being afraid to try new things and, and seeking out interesting people in interesting situations. Yeah, for sure. And I, I feel like I've tried to continue that I, um, you know, I mentioned earlier we're we're in different life phases. I have a, a two year old son right now, and I, I think some of that personality still comes out. Like, I'll be like, "Hey, you want to try this? You want to try that?" And it's it's much less interesting to tell the story of how how your son learned to to try new things. But at the same time, like in my mind, I'm like, I want him to to have some of these experiences down the road where he just says, "Okay, this is new, but I, I really want to try are it." So, you, are you like, what are you thinking about in terms of exposing him to different experiences? Like, are what's something that you've had him do, or you're thinking about having him do that most people would be like, would not expect? Um, gosh, I'm trying to think. I I think I just want him want to put him in situations where he has to has to try new things, like being in different places. I think I'm gonna teach him you know, some standard skills like, like gardening, but I think I'm going to try to take it to what I'd call like the Frank Boyce level where he's like, Oh, what, what else can we garden dad? You know, like, can we, can we cultivate a a coffee tree here? Can we, can we learn the full process of the supply chain of coffee? Like I, I want him to be as big of a nerd as me and like being, having the ability to deep dive subjects and, and understand them sometimes to a level that's almost to your detriment. So I'll, I'll go into a story about myself. So one thing on the engaging versus disengaging, um, one topic that I've started disengaging on is coffee. So I didn't even start drinking coffee until we were in Turkey. Um, I think it was the year that you left. We started that nonprofit coffee shop. Do you remember that? No, I didn't know I about that. I, we, I think we were just starting it when you left. Uh, we started in like August of uh, 2008 and you left in was it October. So I think they, they just overlap. So I didn't even start drinking coffee till 
you know, I was 20, 23 years old. Uh, but since then, I've been like, I don't want to say the biggest coffee nerd, but, you know, I've read, you know, lots and lots of books. Uh, anytime I'm in a new city where there's a roastery, I will go and actually talk to the roasters about the roasting profile of their coffee and why they think that's the proper profile for the type of beans that they're using. So sometimes I'll go into a coffee shop, or I used to, and try to engage with the barista you know, talking about the, their different coffee. And, you know, they serve people all the time. They don't want to get into the roasting profile of the beans. They just want to give me my coffee and have me shut up and give them a good tip. So, like, I would try to engage and engage and engage. And it was it was kind of frustrating to me because I'm like, does no one care as much as I do about coffee? And the uh, the conclusion is, no, they don't. <laughs> they, most people do not care about as much about coffee as I do. But you're talking to so the like, barista. You need to talk to the owner. So I've talked to owners, I've talked to roasters, I've talked to like the master roasters, and it's still very rare that I get somebody who <laughs> is as passionate about the coffee that I'm drinking as, as I am. Like it, that sounds. Have you tried little... roasting your own beans? Yeah, I, I've done it a few times. Is that hard? Um, it's hard in the sense like you can't. Unless you have a commercial roaster, you can't get a super consistent bean roast mm. because it's all about maintaining, maintaining a, like I said, a temperature profile. So you want this this slow escalation, this slow line that keeps keeps going up. And if you're doing it in your oven or a cast iron skillet or even some of the cheaper, more consumer ones that are just like electric electrical coil, like it doesn't maintain the temperature well enough to really get a great roast, but like you can still get a pretty good roast of your beans. So <laughs> I don't know, like it's uh, it's weird to say I've disengaged on something because I've become too into it. But I, I think I think that's why in some circumstances, like you see like the subreddits that are so specific, you're like, who is that into Star Wars? But there, there's out there. So maybe I just need to. Maybe I haven't searched far enough to find the pocket of of coffee lovers and roasters that that I can really dive in and and find people to uh, to inspire me. With the internet, there's got to be people out there that are at least into it as much as you are. Yeah, it's been it's been really interesting to kind of keep learning and learning and learning and kind of get to this plateau where. I feel like I can't push it any farther where I'm, I'm actually going to roasteries and I'm like, Oh, I, I, I can't actually engage as deeply as I wish I could in, in Boston. There's one of the best roasteries in the world, uh, George Howell coffee. And so I actually, I, I got to do a pretty in-depth tour and tasting out there. And so I, th I think since then it's been downhill because George Howell who owns the company is pretty much the father of modern coffee and, you know, really describing what you're tasting because before that, like Maxwell House and Folgers, those were like the premier roasteries until the sixties, really. So like it's a it's a really modern thing. I never even realized how modern of a thing like third third wave coffee is what you call it. And so like past Starbucks, the the more niche okay. places that that really what I would say understand what a good roasted bean tastes like. So it's really it's really new to the world if you're if we're looking at it from a historical standpoint because coffee's been around for centuries. Is it as big is is it as big in Europe and other places in terms of like micro roasting or is are they still I mean I know other places drink a lot of coffee, but are they are they drinking commercial coffee or are they are they into these micro roasting? So I would say England 
um, is kind of where, like London is where, where we are. Like they're, they're pretty current, but if you actually get outside of London, there's, there's only a few, what you'd say are, are the third wave roasters that, that honestly know what they're doing. <clears throat> I think we actually drink less coffee than most of Europe and Scandinavia, but so much of theirs is, is instant coffee or right. things that are similar to, to K-Cups. So I, I really, there's not the same affinity for lightly roasted coffee, I guess I'd say. They there's, love there's Nescafe. Fun, they, they love Nescafe. They love espresso. They love a lot of the dark roaster thing, which which I enjoy. I'm not, I'm not talking down upon it. It's just, it's a different conversation, how, to be how honest How do you with brew you. your coffee? Um, pour over. Um is, is generally, if I have a really nice bean, um, <laughs> I, I sat down and did a cost analysis, um, about a year and a half ago, and this is getting really nerdy. So if anybody doesn't want a minute on, on coffee finances for your own, own personal use, I, I was buying, you know, coffee that ranged anywhere from 12 to $30 per pound. Yeah. Um, and even that, really good coffee goes stale after about four days, even if you have a vacuum sealed. So like there's this degradation of the product that happens really fast. So what I would do is I'd get about halfway through this really expensive coffee and then just be like, Oh, now this tastes like regular coffee. So now I should go buy some, some better beans for next week. So I was just burning through these coffee bags and you know, obviously Katie was like, why are you not drinking this coffee? And I'm like, it doesn't taste as good as new coffee. Oh, I have a question. What brand pour over do you use? Um, I actually use, there's a, there's a ceramic pour over that you can just get off, um, Amazon and it's, it's $12. It's just a normal ceramic pour over. You can get a single cup for $6 off Amazon and it's, it's just really simple. I actually don't necessarily believe that there's a lot of value in, in a Hario or a Chemex. Like there's, there's some people that, that think the design aids better for, uh, extraction or not over extracting, but it really is more skill in getting your grind right for the beans right. and then your <laughs> your time in pouring. I'm getting so nerdy. What, right hey, now. what temperature do you brew it at? Um, I'm on the cool side. I, I never go above 185. Okay. Actually. Have you ever so, used... Some, some people would say that's under, under extracted, but but I, I think that leaves out a lot of the bitterness. I agree. I usually go... I go between... Yeah, 185 is about what I like. I think what you have to... If you like coffee, you need a digital thermometer when you're brewing it. You can't just like a regular coffee maker. I don't even know what they. I think they just use boiling water. Yeah, it is. It's almost boiling. It's like two hundred to two hundred. Have you ever used an Arobi coffee press? Uh, I have with my buddy. My buddy's used it, and we had some some good coffee from it. I don't know how it's better, but I I use that for a while. Have you ever cold brewed coffee? Yes. Yep. What's your number of times? What's your preference or what do you think about cold brew versus regular brew? Um, like for summertime, it's one of my favorite things to do. It's, it's also a great, great thing. And, and part of the finances behind, um, (laughs) some of the finances behind why you can drink more expensive coffee is because if you have a half pound left over, you can just throw it into a cold brew. Right. That's what I was thinking when you were mentioning it. That'd be. So for me, what it came down to was I ended up converting to a Nespresso, uh, virtual line now, um, which is this new model that came out, not new, it's almost two years old now, but it's, it's basically a full cup of espresso. And so the level of crema is insane. Like 
we're talking about three to four inches of crema on every cup of coffee that you brew, which is created by uh, an internal centrifuge that's in the machine. That's how much is this machine? I think they're two ninety nine now. Okay, so you and the th- and the pods are just around a dollar a piece. And you said this is the best espresso. Um, I I think so. I mean, I've, I've sampled a lot. It's it's the most consistent. It doesn't give you the range of flavors like a pour over is going to give you. It doesn't give you the flexibility to to say, you know, like, well, I'm really tired. I don't really care if I'm over extracting. I want the most out of these beans. Uh, so it takes that out. But it was an economic decision for me because I was like, I, I can buy a big set of these pods and they can sit and they'll taste exactly the same at month four as they do at month oh, one. Oh, got you. Yeah. So. It's less about expression and much more about convenience and, and the financial aspect of it. So enough about coffee nerding. And I'm sure we'll have an episode just specifically on coffee in the future because it's it's fascinating when you really, really deal with, uh, especially for us being supply chain people, looking at the full supply chain of coffee and, and how long of a process yeah, it is. Yeah, I'm interested to hear, hear your take on it. Uh, in recent uh, plant growing news, my... My coffee tree has loved being in Nashville as opposed to Minnesota. It, it grew more in the three months that I've been here than it did in three years in Minnesota. <laughs> so at some point, I'll have a couple coffee beans oh, to nice. actually actually get off my tree. Uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is is next week um, we're going to talk about learning uh, and accountability, which neither of those things sound exciting, but I, I think it's going to be a really a really fun conversation on how different it is to to learn as an adult because i think i think it's very different you know when you're forced to do things in school um it's a different psychology uh it's a different level of buy-in and i think there's there's a lot of freedom um and uh great things that we can we can learn from uh being an adult and being able to learn things yeah i'm excited i think there's, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about uh in regards to learning as an adult on your own versus going to college or going to school or whatever and the pluses and minuses of each type. Yeah, it's so much different. So much different. I Honestly, I did not enjoy learning at all in college. Uh, I still studied a lot because there were classes that I was I was not good at. I wasn't very good at aeronautical engineering, so I had to, had to study a lot. Um, but it feels so much different. You know, like I said, like I will deep dive subjects now to a level that I am not even proud to admit. <laughs> hey, here's one thing I think we this would be interesting. I'm interested to hear what you, in high school, college, and your masters, what your best like what class you got the most out of later in life. Oh, that's awesome. That's a great question. Because I think it's not the ones that most people think. Why don't we do this? Uh, if anybody has a comment on that, why don't you leave it on our SoundCloud page? And uh, if there's something that stands out, we may go through those and start off our, our next podcast with that. Do you have uh, any other thoughts? I, I, I think that's all I have. Oh, the one one other thing, and we can leave it for next time if you want. I'll leave it up to you. Um, for me, it's been really interesting this last week, uh, or odd, to be honest, um, when thoughts bubble up that I get to write them down and we get to talk about them on this. So I, I, I think there's this interesting, it's not even catharsis, it's just this this outlet for for random thoughts. And I think as someone who is very curious and who has a lot of random thoughts, I, I appreciate that. I, and I, I can't. I so I'm excited to take notes this week because I think I'm, <clears throat> I'm going to be taking notes while I peruse the news. And 
the purpose will be twofold. One, because I want to internalize this more than I have in the past. And also, I'll be able to bring these notes into the next week's pod. So I, I'm excited for adding that element to my to, to my research. That's great. One, uh, one thing we need to think about for next week is the sign-off. I, we didn't actually touch on that uh, in our notes beforehand, but I, I think we're going to need to do some brainstorming and, and figure something out that's real tight for next week. Yeah, like it. Sweet. All right, well, this is uh, this has been Noise Canceling Pod, Episode 1. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, like I said, leave as many comments on SoundCloud. We're also on Stitcher, and you can find us on iTunes, so subscribe. And like you've heard on every podcast, if you leave uh, comments, it actually does help our rankings. So feel free to leave comments. Feel free to tell us what we did well, what we need to work on, because this is a learning learning environment in general and i think that's the main reason why we posted our beta test last week is to just open that door behind what it takes to to get good at things because they're like we'll talk about next week there's there's accountability and and we want to be accountable to the listeners and and really learn as much from this process as we possibly can so leave comments thanks for listening anything else that's it have a good week hey happy thanksgiving to everyone happy thanksgiving